You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 1. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Lord, your word is a light to our feet, a a light, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is through keeping your word that we are warned about the path of sin, that we are guided in the path of righteousness. Lord, I pray that in this class during our 13 weeks together on Monday nights, you would have the sense that you are guiding us through uh, your word to your truth to yourself. I ask, Lord, that that the size of this class would not uh, get in the way of getting to know one another and having our questions asked. I ask, Lord, that uh, whether we're engaged in careful reading of your word or in big questions about life, whether we're engaged in personal edification or training ourselves for uh, the guidance of the church, that we would be pleased to have the sense that we are even in your presence, even while we are about our academic business. Lord, we commit this night and every night to you, we pray through Christ. Amen. In a word, what I want to accomplish is to help you master the occasions, to master the backgrounds, master the concerns of the books we study, which are Hebrews and Revelation. And as a bonus, just for you, we're also going to cover the pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus as well, as time permits, at the end of the class. And that's because the, uh, the other course that's like this, New Testament survey generally does not get to the pastoral epistles. If you're taking classes at night, you probably wouldn't get into those books. So we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time in those books at the end. So we want to get a feel for those books and, above all, to get a sense of the unique contribution that the books Hebrews, James, Peter, 1 John, and Revelation make to the Christian faith, to our belief, to our life, uh, to the canon as Christians. More about that, of course as the course goes by. Uh, for those of you who like to know how things run, here we go. Toward the bottom of this page. Uh, first of all, grading. And you can uh, read that for yourself. Uh, basically, A means great. B means good. C means okay. D means not okay. So we hope that there are no Ds or Fs. But that's the basic standard. 90% is ordinarily an A, 80% a B, and so on. You'll be graded as follows. I'm going to make a small adjustment by request, or I think a sensible request. Small adjustment, what's on here. You're going to have a, a test, sort of a one-third of the course or 30% of the course test at the beginning of week five. That will cover what happens tonight, and it will cover the book of Hebrews, week five, starting off class. Uh, then second, there will be a final, and that will cover the rest of the class, And third, you will have reflection papers. Now, there are eight reflection papers. A reflection paper is a one-page essay on the topics that I ask you to think about. There are actually 13 of them listed, and you have to choose any eight. And a couple weeks, there are two options. Most weeks, there's just one option. Write me one page. By one page, I mean, for those of you who like it this way, Uh, I'll say 400 words is a page if you have a word count. Now, you say, what if I really get going? Can I go up to 500 words sometime? Because 
I just have these wonderful ideas that I can't bear to fail to put on paper. Yes, you can. You can do that once or twice. But then you have to kind of make up for it by writing a short one. And this is for your protection and the protection of my graders who know that they have to grade a lot of papers. But for your protection, I don't want you to think the more I write, the better my grade. These are supposed to be short. This is not supposed to be a time-consuming, life-dominating class. Okay? So, you know, keep it short. Keep it simple. Reflect on things. I am not going to collect those, as I usually do, entirely at the end of class. What I want to do is collect four of them on about week seven or eight, I'll decide in the future. But I'm not, So that way you know how you're doing in the class. Most people say they like to know how they're doing. So we're going to do it that way. We'll say we'll, we'll collect four, and then we'll turn it back, and you can see how you're doing it to do four more. So that'll be the motif. Now you may ask, where are those reflection papers to be found? And the answer is on page two and three of the course guide. Now I'm skipping a little bit, but let me just talk to you about our course schedule next. And we have night by night uh, what we're going to do each day as we go through the class. And uh, tonight is, is introduction to the course and, and introduction to the book, uh, to the social world in the New Testament, and maybe just a little bit of introduction to the book of Hebrews. Then next week, turn to the next page, the opportunity to do reflection papers begins. And you see there it has your readings for the week, and it has a topic for your thought. You're supposed to do it before class. So you come to class having thought about something very significant, and ideally it makes the class better for you because you've uh, given some serious thought to it in advance. And they go through week by week. I am not going to be slavish about, about following this course schedule. I may compress the pastoral epistles, that's Timothy and Titus, down to two weeks. If we just find ourselves slowing down, that's fine because of uh, the time needed to have discussion time at the end of class. So um, we, if, if, it gets, if we start to get far off, I'll let you know, and we'll just start delaying a little bit. But I'm not going to plan on delaying a lot. So we'll keep in touch about that. Uh, back up to page two for a moment. You will notice that you have three books that are required for this course. And uh, let's see. People didn't bring them. That's fine. This, uh, good. Thank you, Darlene. Darlene has the books. Uh, one book is Hebrews. Uh, Called equipment looks like this, and that's the first one you'll read. Then there are uh, there's one on the book of Revelation, which looks like this, and there's one. <laughs> can you tell them apart? And there's one on the book of James that looks like this. So there they are. There are your three books. You're not going to read all every last page of these because I want you to focus on reading the Bible. I want you to read the Bible well and slowly. I want you to read Hebrews to Revelation very carefully. Maybe even read them twice. And read them slowly. So not a huge amount. I know there's three books and you have to buy them and so on. But you know, not a huge amount of reading in textbooks. And they're not real demanding textbooks. Uh, but that's going to be balanced by, I hope, careful, careful reading of the Bible. One more thing on this course guide. And that is, uh, for the examination, I have a series of questions you might want to use as guides to the kinds of things you are liable to be asked about. These questions will not appear in so many words on the exam, but this is the kind of thing that I think is important. It can be a little bit of a guide for you. So it's an evening class. Let me just ask a question. How many of you are taking your first class at Covenant Seminary right now? One, two, three. Oh, not that many. Okay, just, just only about five of you? Okay. How many of you are taking uh, your first class with me? 
Anyway, okay, a lot of people are taking their first class with me. That's good. So if you have questions, uh, maybe, maybe ask right now. Is, there, is this anything fabulously unclear right now? It needs to be clarified. You're in graduate school, so I know you can read this for yourself. Yes. Uh, not on the exams, on the reflection papers. It says here on the reflection paper, I, have, was, I said I'll collect them all at the end of the course. I'm going to collect four of them halfway through the course. That's the change. Uh, 20% of the grade. Yep. Okay. Stan. Now, under writing projects, you've got point one and point two. Are they a description of the same page, or is there two different sections? On a couple of days. It's like eight reflection papers, and then the set point two says write short essays on the reflection topic. No, that's the same thing. That's probably, you know what that probably is? Is probably a revision of the course guide and then I got a phone call and I sh you know meant to and it's still red and the spell check said it was okay and so <laughs> so there you are okay so if we combine those two paragraphs together we'll get the full what, what you want to do is you want to write on you want to write me eight little essays that's the bottom line you have you have 13 chances and you want to you want to take up eight of those 13 chances and that'll be about just a touch less than a third of your grade okay yes I forgot, Susan. Linda. Linda. Oh, sorry. The bookstore says that the book on James is optional. Is it optional? Uh, you're going to read most of it, so, you know, a little more than half. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you might borrow with a friend or something. You're, you're going to read just about half, maybe a touch more than half. So it's recommended. Yes, and there are a couple of things on reserve. I th I'll tell you what I think I want to do. I don't, I don't like to drag things out forever, you know, at the beginning. And then we got off to a boring start. So I'll talk to you about what's on reserve maybe after the break. Okay? All right. So we already prayed once. It's like, you know, it's like going through a line, at, you know, a really slow smorgasbord line at a church. You, you pray, and you only get your food 45 minutes later. And it seems like you should pray again by the time. But we already prayed once. So let's go ahead and, and start our class just like that. Let me just give you a big picture. Let me give you the overview of what I want to do in this class. What I would like to do is to help you see what the unique contribution of the books, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation are to the Christian faith and to the Christian life. Now, if you look at the, the books of the New Testament... You look at Christian theology, Christian thought, the way people quote the Bible. The Gospels and the letters of Paul have a certain pride of place. They dominate our consciousness as Christians. One scholar put it this way, said simply this, Christianity today is broadly speaking the Christianity of St. Paul or of Paul the Apostle. That's true. And I might not even say that that's wrong, but I'd like to broaden our horizons so that we see Hebrews, James, Revelation as books that provide us other perspectives on the faith that we believe and that we live out. That is the broad purpose of the course. Hebrews alone shows us the high priestly ministry of Christ. 
The book of James presents Jesus as the Lord of our ethical life, simply giving commands in a way that Paul's letters never quite do. A Peter describes the relationship between Israel and the church and holds out Jesus as an example to believers, the way no particular passage in Paul ever does. The book of John warns us so clearly about the danger of, of schism or divisions in the church and warns us to be discerning about uh, the spirit of apostasy. And the book of Revelation has a splendid vision, the supreme vision of the spiritual warfare and the power of Christ in defeating Satan. Those are things that those books have that may be found here and there elsewhere in the Gospels or in the books of Paul, but they develop them with a, with a power, with a clarity, with a depth that is unparalleled. I want us to get an eye for the unique message of each book of the New Testament. Now, that's my goal for the course. Let me say uh, quickly that not everybody would, uh, would be immediately uh, willing to follow that goal. And I have, uh, if the doc cam works, I have a little guide, a sort of a, a visual that describes the way things really are. The way things really are is... I'm trying to decide if I want to deputize somebody to turn off those lights or run over and get them myself. Phil, you want, can you, will you be deputized? Just turn those off for a minute so that can be a little more visible. Uh, the general epistles, Hebrews to Revelation, uh, could be called something like the best of the rest of the New Testament. Now, we say that this isn't the way we want to think, and we say this isn't the way we are, but the truth is, that most of the church functions with a sort of a canon within the canon. The canon within the canon are the books we love and read and think about and meditate upon the most, and they include the Gospels, the letters of Paul, with the possible exception of Philemon, I guess, and maybe 2 Timothy, uh, the book of Acts, Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah. The three dots signify simply that you may have, other people may have a favorite book, Maybe Deuteronomy might, might be up there. Proverbs might be up there for somebody else. And there's a sort of a second circle. And these are, you know, if this is the red-letter edition, for goodness sakes, we do have red-letter Bibles, don't we? So, you know, if, if these are the red-letter books, then we also have, you know, runner-up type books. You know, blue ribbon books. Uh, and they are books like uh, Proverbs and Deuteronomy, just mentioned. Maybe the letters of uh, Peter. Maybe the uh, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, the historical books of the Old Testament that we read a lot, Jeremiah, Daniel, uh, Hebrews, Revelation. And again, there may be a few more. Somebody may have First John in there. Then there are other books that are, uh, that are sort of in the outer darkness. And there are books like Minor, Prophets, you know. I mean, when was the last time you heard a sermon on Nahum, Obadiah? How many people here have ever heard a sermon on Nahum? Raise your hand. Okay, I've got two people, three people out of 120. Uh, that's not a lot. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on Obadiah? Nahum, Obadiah, you've got about five or six. And you, you think about it, pastors should want to preach sermons on Nahum and Obadiah because it gives them a chance to say, you know, preach through that a whole book this year, right? <laughs> you know, these preachers that get criticized for taking five years on John or four years on, on Romans, they can say, listen, I knocked off, uh, you know, seven books this year. Nahum, Obadiah, maybe, maybe Jonah one week, you know. And, and even so, hardly ever do we get a message. Leviticus, I, I didn't uh, quite even get them on here. You know, Haggai, how often do we hear sermons on that? Also, from our group, books like Jude and 2nd and 3rd John get very, very little attention. I'll even confess to you they aren't going to get a lot of attention in this class. 
What we need to do, then, as a goal, is to hear the distinctive contribution that each book of the New Testament makes to our canon. And we can probably get a tiny bit more light. Uh, The difficulty is, then, that we ignore these books and they function as something like uh, orphans, as wanderers that don't have any special internal unity. And as uh, Christians, we tend to divide the New Testament up as Gospels and the Epistles, the Epistles of Paul, pride of place, and then the rest. Again, Paul's letters have a certain pride of place. Why? Well, for one thing, he wrote a lot. He wrote 13 books. He wrote very systematic books like Romans and Ephesians. He wrote books that answer a lot of questions that people have, like 1 Corinthians and Philippians are are question-answering books. Paul seems to have been pretty systematic, and so he lends himself to systematic theologians. Those are some reasons why Paul has pride of place. But again, we want to hear the distinctive voice of the various books, Hebrews to Revelation. So let's see how we could describe those books just a little bit. First of all, we could look at these books, Hebrews to Revelation, as Catholic epistles. Now, by Catholic epistles, I do not mean books written by Catholics or books that Catholics really like and that Protestants wonder about sometimes. What I mean is a Catholic epistle is one that is written to an entire, to the entire church. Now, to whom was the book of Romans written? It was written to the church at Rome. That's a good, precise answer. How about 1 Corinthians? To whom was that written? It was written to the church at Corinth, Galatians, Ephesians, and so forth. Now, maybe Galatians was written to a, a series of churches in a certain region. But if you look at our books, several of our books that we're looking at in this course, do not say they're written to a church in a particular place. If you have your Bible open, it's time to uh, get your fingers busy. And you can look at a couple places like James 1.1 1, 1, and 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Jude 1, and so on. James 1.1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Now, who's that written for? It's for all Jews who are believers throughout the world, not to any particular group. First Peter, just turn a couple pages back. First Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and so on. So, to whom is Peter writing? Well, you don't want to repeat this one, but, you know, this is a group of Roman provinces that really cover a vast domain. This is not a particular church in one place. Uh, Next, we have 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 reads, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as our own. Who's he writing to? All Christians. Anybody who's received this precious faith. And maybe one more uh, from the book of Jude, which follows 3 John. We see that he begins, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. To whom does Jude write? He writes to all Christians, to all who have been called, to all who are loved. So we call these 
Catholic epistles, and the, the upshot is that they tend not to be as intent as uh, as focused on some local internal circumstance. They are something that is of interest to the entire church, not limited to local situations. A second, we could describe these books as pastoral books. By pastoral books, I mean that they are functioning to lead the church into the truth, uh, perhaps in difficult times. Uh, Hebrews clearly is a pastoral book. The author is a leader of the church, most likely the church in Rome, around the year 68 AD. He's not able to be with them. He writes them a letter, which is the sermon that he would preach if he were there, to tell them how to persevere in times of persecution. The letters of John are full of pastoral language. Uh, John says things like, um, my brothers, my dear brothers, my beloved children, my dear children. He's constantly using terms of endearment with this group of people who are facing a schism, a great division in their church uh, that he regards as his children. James looks like a pastoral work in various ways, especially seems to be addressing the danger that many people, many Jewish Christians have, of, of resting too much in head knowledge. And so he warns them or chastises them to bring them back to a lived faith. It has a pastoral feel. Several of the books in this list are, are showing their opposition to heresy. Jude, Second Peter, and First John are deeply concerned with the corrosive effects of heresy on the life of the church. A couple of them are sermons. Hebrews says it's a sermon, chapter 13, verse 22. He says, bear with this word of exhortation, which is a word for, phrase for, a sermon. And other books appear to be sermons as well. Maybe First uh, Peter and James have a feel like maybe they were sermons at one point. Uh, these books also hark back to the Gospels in certain ways. Now, the Gospels are filled with References to discipleship, to obeying the words of Christ, to the kingdom. The word kingdom appears in the letters of Paul in the book of Acts. But it goes from appearing well over 100 times in the Gospels, maybe 150 times or so, to about 15 or 20 times in the letters of Paul, all of them put together. And all of a sudden the kingdom and the reign and the power and the glory of Christ come back again in these books. And back again, we get the voice simply of Christ, the King, the Lord, who commands his church. So in some ways, these books hark back to the Gospels. Those are some of the, uh, some of the traits of these books. Uh, there is a question that I'm not sure how many of you would have. Let me just ask you momentarily. How many of you, are, how many of you went to a secular university in college? Okay, I see the majority of you did. How many of you are at a, in a secular situation right now, working in a secular workplace or at a secular school right now? Okay, a large number again. Uh, one of the questions that people ask in a setting like that is, how can we know what is true? I've been told by friends of mine, uh, and by reading it here and there, that baby boomers have their own set of questions. Generation Xers have their set of questions. Generation Xers are very interested in the question, what can I trust or who can I trust? Now, in a secular university, that's also a fundamental question. Among the many options, among the many, many ideas of what the truth is, among the many proposals for a trustworthy source, which one is really reliable? 
And then the Christian walks in and says, here's the Bible. That's the thing. That's the source. Trust that. And what happens in the secular university? Well, they don't always pay attention to us, do they? Uh, but beyond that, one of, the, one of the questions that you will get in a secular setting is, so you say the Bible is the word of God, it's true, it's infallible. Where did you, you know, what makes you so sure? And the truth is, I answer that question kind of in another class. I spent a lot of time on that in the Life of Jesus class. What makes you so sure that this is actually true and reliable and that the events that are purported to have happened actually occurred? But a second question people ask is, where did you get this book from? I mean, who decided that these books, these 66 books, I, I couldn't find my own regular Bible. I have my, my wife's four-pound Bible with me today. But for, you know, for the purpose right now, this is great, you know, to wave this great thick. I mean, you could, you could knock somebody out with this thing. You know, where do you get these, where do you get these 66 books and no others? Fair question. And somebody who is, is fairly knowing, or has maybe taken, you know, religion 101, and knows just enough to be dangerous, because they'd studied with some secular person who was once a Christian, back as a Southern Baptist up to the fourth grade, and now hates Christianity, told them that the books that we have, the 27 books of the New Testament, are not listed anywhere in the New Testament itself. You know, where, how do you know these books are the ones? And furthermore, they may, they may be really sharp. And they say, you know, these 27 books of the New Testament, that's how many there are, 27 books of the New Testament were never really fully agreed upon until maybe the early 5th century. In fact, the first time you get a list of these 27 and no others is in a letter by a man named Athanasius who was under a suspicion, false suspicion, I'll quickly add, false suspicion of being a heretic for half of his life. And that was in the year 367 A.D. It's the first list of these 27 and no others. And the first time a church council lists these, these 27 and no others with no debate is in the year 397 A.D. And that's at the Council of Carthage, which uh, was not one of the biggest councils of the early church. And so people wonder, where do you get these books? And what I'd like to do, because this is probably the one chance many of you will have in this curriculum, is to answer that question. So I said we're going to talk about Hebrews of Revelation, and we are. But tonight, I would like to talk about where we get these books, because I think it is a foundational question, and is one upon which uh, many of us are challenged or will be challenged at some point in our lives if we are doing our job and staying in contact with unbelievers. If you spend all your time with Christians, you know, then you won't have this problem. But I'm hoping that you do not spend all your time with Christians, and that you will need to give an account for why you quote these books as authoritative. I'll even imagine a scenario for a moment with you, if I may. Imagine that you are indeed on a state university, on a secular campus, and you're even, let's I'll even go this far and say, you are the speaker at a debate. And it may, if you like, be only 15 people in attendance, or it can be 500, depending on the size of your ego, but uh, just imagine that you're, you're the Protestant representative there on that particular day. Uh, there is a, you know, there's an atheist, and there is a, a Jew, and there is a Roman Catholic, and there's a liberal Protestant, and then there's you. You're the conservative Protestant. 
And you're going through your reasoning and maybe talking, you know, with his fellow Christians. And to your surprise, you're finding yourself, since you just took this course and you liked it so much, you're finding yourself quoting Revelation and Hebrews and James and First Peter uh, repeatedly. And after a while, the liberal Protestant turns on you because he wasn't expecting these things. He was expecting you to spend all your time in the Gospel of John, Book of Romans, and so on. And he says something like this, you know... George or Georgina, whatever you are, why do you keep on quoting Hebrews and Jude and Peter and Revelation? You know, these books uh, really don't belong in the New Testament canon. They were not written by eyewitnesses of the, of the ministry of Jesus, and they were doubted for centuries by the early church. Uh, what makes you treasure these books? Let's suppose he whips out the thing. The first time the 27 are listed by Athanasius in the year 367 A.D. in his Easter letter. The first council to say these are the 27 is the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. And furthermore, uh, the New Testament church, uh, the Christian church, has usually ignored many of these books. They have a deuterocanonical status. They aren't. Uh, the books we really use, they weren't voted in until 450 A.D. And uh, even now that they are voted in, nobody pays much attention to them anyway. Uh, what's your problem? Let's get back to John and to Romans. You are stunned. But your Roman Catholic friend rises to your defense as follows. Uh, the Catholic says, Sir, many of your criticisms are indeed valid but your objections only serve to enhance the Catholic perspective. God ordained the teaching office of the church to guide the church through matters such as these. It would indeed be difficult to prove the canonicity of Second Peter and Revelation to an objective audience, and everything you say about the slow recognition of the church is true. However, the Lord has guided the church through history. The Spirit works slowly, and He has blessed uh, the teaching office, the, uh, the bishops, and the cardinals of the church are led and inspired by the Lord. And so the voice of Christ, the voice of God, continues through this day, through the living voice of Christ in the bishops of the church. At which point you're thinking, with friends like this, who needs enemies? Would you know how to answer if these two came forward? What would you say if you were asked why you choose and read these books and no other. What are the typical answers people give? And in case you're wondering, you are allowed to answer. This is not rhetorical. Um, what are the typical reasons people give for saying these are our books? What are their, what would they say? What would you say? Or what would, if you don't want to put yourself on the line, what would an ordinary, fairly unlettered Christian say? Tradition. So you would say, uh, fill it out. What do you mean tradition? Okay. Okay. Uh, tradition, that's what we were always taught. That's what we've always believed. That's what the church has always said. Yes. So you would say, one, one reason why we know that Hebrews counts is because it sounds kind of like Paul's letters. Well, or James is kind of like the Gospels. So. Yeah, yeah. Can I, can I put the word coherence? There's a coherence of all 27 books. That's fair. Okay, what else would people, ordinary persons say? Yes. Yes. Okay, God, God is sovereign. And 
surely he would guide his church, wouldn't he? I mean, he wouldn't let a book that we need fail to make it to us. Right? Okay, what else? Now, you're giving, you're giving good, noble answers. Give me some bad Protestant answers. <laughs> some, some naive, unthinking, low quality, but things that people actually say, yes. Okay, I like that. Now, that's a, that's a good, solid, bad answer. That is exactly what I wanted. It means a lot to me. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one people say. Or, you know, the Lord speaks to me through those books. Huh? How about that? Right? I just hear the Lord's voice. Yes? Any, maybe I just stole the other really good, bad answer. Any other good, bad answers? Yes? Okay, okay, that's a good, bad answer. <laughs> I can understand those books. Some of these, you know, these theologians, who knows what they're talking about, but, but I, can, I can get a grip on these things. What else? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, yeah, you can always fall back on that. God said it, that settles it. And that kind of goes back to this. You know, we have them. Or, you know, if it was good enough for my grandmother, it was good enough for me. If it's good enough for King James, it's good enough for me. That, you know, that kind of reasoning, right? I mean, that's around. You don't want to... We don't want to embarrass anybody, but, uh, but there are a lot of people who think that way. Okay, what is the answer? Can we do, can we do better than that, I guess? Well, let me really go back to one or two of these that kind of run together in the good. It means a lot to me. The Lord speaks to me through them. Uh, those answers are, are really so subjective that they almost cut off any discussion. And the other person says, well, I read them, and they don't mean a lot to me. So that's the end of that. And you really get nowhere that way. Uh, the person who says, <clears throat> maybe gets a little bit more, in a slightly more sophisticated way, that is to say, these are the books the church has always had, that's the way we've always been taught, is really still basing everything on experience in the final analysis. What they're saying is it's the cumulative experience of the church. That is to say, generation by generation, not just my subjective experience, <clears throat> but the experience of many, many Christians. And you really, what happens actually is you're falling back into a Catholic position. When you say that's the way the church has always done it, it's back to really uh, wise people chose for us, and it doesn't really matter when they chose, but people chose. Put it to you a different way. If somebody says, I know these books <clears throat> are the 27, they're the inspired word of God, because God blesses me, God saved me, God is edifying me and speaking to me through these books, <clears throat> the hard question that I would put to them because you'll get it from somebody else if I don't. The hard question I would put to them is, what else have you read from that period of time? You want to say those books are the ones that edify you? Have you ever read the Epistle of Barnabas? Have you read the Didache? Have you read the Shepherd of, Shepherd of Hermas? Have you read the letters of Ignatius and Clement? All written in the first century A.D. How many of you have read the letter of Ignatius to the Corinthians? Okay, we got uh, two people. Very good. How many of you have read Shepherd of Hermas? One person. How many of you have read Epistle of Barnabas? One person. Are we, are we getting the point here? <clears throat> How can you say, these are the 27 because God speaks to me, when you've never tried any others? Or for that matter, hasn't God spoken to you through the books of C.S. Lewis? Or John Stott or J.I. Packer? Have you, you been moved and edified by books like that? I hope you even be moved or edified by the books you read here at the seminary. Maybe even the books you read in this course. 
I've, had, I've taught classes, and people have been converted, not by reading the Bible, but by reading the assigned textbooks. That's actually happened to me several times. Not here, but in a Christian college, everybody wasn't a Christian. So surely that happens. What makes, what makes it so that C.S. Lewis and John Stott and J.I. Packer aren't inspired when people are edified? So you see, we need to have better answers than it means a lot to me. It's always been taught that way. It benefits me. It brings me to faith and, and statements of that nature. We need better answers. And the answers, uh, ideally, should come from the church, from the Bible itself. Let me go through down for a little bit and some uh, approaches to where we get the books uh, that we have. Let me say, first of all, that some questions that people raise about the 27 books do have some validity. There are real questions, solid questions that deserve answers about where we get our Bible, and especially even the books we're talking about here. For example, we really don't know who wrote some of these books. Hebrews has not a clue as to who wrote it. Nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Somebody may have guessed right, but nobody knows. A second and third John and first John, second and third John are, are, and first John really don't say who wrote them. Uh, they talk about, you know, he's an elder, and there are various clues that lead us to the Apostle John. But he never says, I, John, one of the twelve, the Apostle of Christ, you know, writes to you. There are clues, but it's never explicit. Also, the, the author of Revelation is simply John. It doesn't say which, maybe there's several Johns. You'd, everybody kind of thinks it's. The Apostle John, who else would dare to say John and have the world know, or think the world would know who he was? But he doesn't absolutely spell out who he is. He doesn't say, I, John, one of the twelve, and so on. Then some of the books uh, have, shall we say, run into trouble in the early church because they're just so short. And they're small, and they, they deal with small themes like Jude and Second Peter, which really spend almost all their effort on refuting heresy, as do Second and Third John as well. A couple of the books are known to be written by non-apostles. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, if you have your Bible, you might want to turn. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, makes it clear that he was not around for the earthly ministry of Christ, or at least his congregation was, and he seems to put himself with them in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, pick up a little context, chapter 2, verse 2. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Do you see that? Key phrase. It was announced by the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. What did he just, what did he just imply? That he didn't hear him. <clears throat> Somebody else had to confirm to him uh, what indeed it was all about. So Hebrews, written by apparently a second generation Christian. Then, of course, we have Jude and James, who appear to have been written by the brothers of Christ. But, you know, the brothers of Christ mocked him during his own life. At one point, they you know, said to him, hey, Jesus, going down to the festival, going down to Passover? You're going to show the people your stuff, aren't you, Jesus? Show them your tricks. Go ahead. That's in John chapter 7, where his own brothers appear to taunt him almost. And then, of course, well, let's see, I think that's the main thing right there. Um, one other thing is that, indeed, it is true that the church 
did have some debates about some of these books, like Hebrews. They were troubled. People were troubled for a long time by the idea that they didn't, weren't quite sure who wrote it. A lot of people thought it was Paul. And some people argue that it should be accepted because, although it's not sure, it was Paul. Other people say it doesn't really matter. It has the stamp of truth, and it's been used by the church. Some people were afraid of revelation because of, um, of, of just the wildness of the imagery and because some people became very enthusiastic. It's called chiliasm, but enthusiastic about the thousand-year reign of Christ, and it seems to have been abused by some people early on. So those books were questioned for a while. Well, what shall we say? What can we say about actually answering the question, where do we get these books? First of all, we want to say that the Roman Catholic Church is by and large untroubled by this question. They say and they believe that the history of the church is good enough. What the church has said through its bishops over the years is okay, even if it took 500 years. That's okay. Because there are a lot of things that take time. I mean, it took a long time for the church to realize that Mary was perpetually a virgin. It took the church a long time to realize, so they would say, that the Pope never makes any mistakes when he speaks from his, from his throne. And so this one took a while, but that's all right. The Lord slowly leads into the truth. Protestants, Protestants of course, can't be satisfied with that. They know that this, like many other Catholic statements, it would be nice if it were true, I'll put it that way. I mean, wouldn't it be great... If we had bishops, and whenever we couldn't decide something, we said, listen, take 100 years, think about it, and get back to us. And when you're done, the church will have the truth. And that once all the bishops and the popes get together, and they decide something, it's done. And we can be done with our disputes. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could be done with, say, debates on baptism? Just like that, you know? It would be appealing. The problem is that the facts don't seem to bear out that hope. Specifically, uh, the Roman Catholic bishops and the popes have said some things that are terrible over the years and, and that are entirely contrary to the gospel and to the truth and to good Christian living and, and to a sound hope. So we might like it, but we can't have it. So Protestants have to have something more solid, and they want something that comes from the Bible. Now, I will tell you that Protestants got off to a kind of a false start. When Protestantism first came onto the scene, uh, immediately Catholics saw that Protestants would have to answer this question, and so they put it to Luther. And Luther basically answered the question, where do you get these books this way? The canon is whatever preaches and urges Christ. Whatever urges and preaches Christ is the canon. Now, do you know where that led Luther? I'm sure somebody in this room knows the consequence of that for Luther. He was very critical of the book of James. Because James, if you don't know it, you will when you read for this class, James does not have any reference to the cross of Christ. It does not have any reference to his death, his resurrection, to his atonement, to justification by faith in Christ. It's not there. Now, I still think it belongs Okay, but Luther said, therefore, this is a, an epistle of straw. And he made various other disparaging remarks about James. And he actually made a couple disparaging remarks about Jude and Revelation as well, because they, too, did not, in his view, have a sufficiently forceful or clear presentation of Christ's sacrifice, the atonement, and the call to faith through the atonement. You might say that 
Luther advocated a Christocentric canon as opposed to a theocentric canon. He wanted not just God to be present, but he wanted Christ to be presented in a certain way. And various Lutherans have followed him in this, and they've said things like, the canon is whatever witnesses to Christ so as to elicit faith. And they've said that the canon is whatever permits itself, listen to this, whatever permits itself to be preached as the live and heard as the living voice of Christ. Now tell me, what's wrong with that? The canon is whatever permits itself to be preached and heard as the living voice of Christ. Where can that go wrong? Okay, subjectivism, Linda says, keep on going. How can that be subjective? Okay? There, there are churches today that say that, you know, God speaks to individuals by themselves. So okay. You get one message and I get another, and we'd be off and never, never. Okay. <clears throat> the danger of subjectivity, the danger of people hearing their own, you know, getting their own spiritual direction, we might say. It's also the danger, do you, do you see this, if the canon is what is preachable and hearable, what happens? <clears throat> well, you start preaching what you want to hear, and the canon would change every generation, wouldn't it? Because some things would work better in one generation than another. And, of course, at its worst-case scenario, what would happen would be that the church would, would deafen itself to what it needs the most, and that the preachers and teachers would capitulate themselves, capitulate to that decision, we don't want to hear that anymore. So, that, you know, in a sense, canon corrects our deaf and blind spots. I'll quote a friend of mine who said, if you want to know what Christ is saying to the church today, look at the parts of your Bible that are not underlined. There's a lot of truth in that. We need to get, you know, why is it that we have some favorite passages? Well, maybe because it answers our favorite questions. We need to let God put questions we don't like to us. So it's very dangerous then to have a subjective uh, uh, test or something like, you know, a Christocentric canon. What we need is a canon that comes from the Bible itself. Now, some other people have tried to do that, and they've come up with a different approach. I will call it the, the empirical quest for the canon, or the historical quest for canonicity. And what happens here is you get people like, and, and maybe the hero of this would be F.F. Bruce, who wrote a wonderful book called The Canon of Scripture, F.F. Bruce, and another book on the canon of Scripture, a very similar title, I think it's the text and the canon of the, of the, of the Scripture. His name is Bruce Metzger, and they're both, they're two peas in a pod. They're, they're believing men, actually Bruce died recently, but they're, they're believing men who are who are scholars who look empirically at the history of the church and look at the New Testament, they come up with answers like this. What is canonical is, number one, what's apostolic. That is to say it has to be written by an apostle. And it's what's ancient. It's written back near the time of the events at hand. And it's what the church has always used, a public use of a book, books that were read aloud in worship from the beginning, even, you know, when, when Bibles or books were outrageously expensive. Now, sometimes they would throw in things also like uh, Catholicity in there with public use. It doesn't say it's what the church everywhere has used. So there may be a place, <coughs> pardon me, where, like, where, say, the Shepherd of Hermas was read and loved. But there were only a few places. 
whereas the other books were read everywhere and loved and revered everywhere. Sometimes they throw in another category, inspiration of the spirit, but I think that's non-commensurate. The others are objective historical, and then they throw in this theological category, inspiration, and I think it doesn't fit. Now, is that a pretty good list? Pretty good list? It's a pretty good list. The problem with it is that each one has a flaw. For example, apostolicity. The truth is, if you looked at the 27 books of the New Testament and asked how many of them were written by one of the 12, do you know what the answer is? Eight. Eight. Thirteen letters by Paul. He might have seen a little bit of the life of Christ, but he was not one of the 12. He says so very plainly. James, Jude, for that matter, Mark and Luke in the book of Acts. All written by non-apostles. So, boy, counting heads doesn't seem to work very well. How about antiquity? Written near the time of the events? That sounds good. But, of course, there's a problem, and that is Luke 1.1 says, many have undertaken to write an account of the things we witnessed, right? So the fact that a book is old doesn't mean it's good. In fact, Luke seems to be interested in correcting books or accounts of the life of Christ that have weaknesses. Public use, well, Didache and Hermas were read publicly sometimes, and there were places where Revelation and Second Peter and Jude weren't, and they even deliberately were not used. So that doesn't seem to solve it all. Uh, what I want to tell you is that those criteria, apostolicity, antiquity, public use, catholicity, those are useful, but they are not the core of what determines that a book is canonical. Uh, what people often choose, as, uh, and I'll say reform people often use, as the mark of a book being canonical is its self-attestation. Now, self-attestation is basically the idea <clears throat> that the Bible can't be proven to be the Word of God. Books of the Bible can't be proven the Word of God by something outside itself, because if it is then that authority is more final or more ultimate. Do you see the point? Let me just use an illustration for a moment. If I'm going to make a difficult point or a rare point or a questionable point in a lecture, what is it likely that I'll do? I'll quote somebody. Why do I quote somebody? Who will I quote? Will I quote my neighbor who's a construction worker? Okay, what I want to do is quote an expert, right? True? I want to quote an expert... And then I'll say, you see, I'm not the only person who believes this. There are these other reputable people who believe this. And in fact, if you're writing something in a term paper, and uh, you know that there's a good chance you're going to get ripped by the professor as he reads it, what do you do? You run for cover. How do you run for cover? What's it called? You, it's called a give your source, put down a footnote, right? But every time you do that, what you're saying is, don't trust me, trust someone who's superior to me. But the Bible can't do that. So there's, there's certainly a point at which it is absolutely right to say the New Testament, and the Old for that matter, has to be self-attesting because it can't appeal to anything beyond itself. But the danger is that if you say simply, well, how do you know that these books are the books of the New Testament or are the ones that we should trust as canon? Well, because it's self-attesting. See, that cuts off conversation in a hurry. Again, we're back at a secular university. Why should, why should I trust that these are, these are the books that I should trust? Well, because they say they're the books you should trust. They say, fine, I'll go get some cappuccino. 
You know, that doesn't lead anywhere. And so we want to look deeper than simply to say, I know these are the books because they say they're the books. In fact, self-attestation can also go bad in another way. It can seem like you're saying, I know they're the books because I've heard a little voice inside me that said they're the books. They say they are, therefore they are. And, of course, they do say they are. It's true that the 27 do have things in them like, thus says the Lord. And they do have things in them. The apostles do say things like, this is the law I laid down in all the churches. They just stand on their own authority. And they expect their books to be read. And they say things like, blessed is he who reads the words of this book, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. So they do claim to be, they do claim, it's true, that the Bible claims to be authoritative, the word of God. And in a sense, that's our foundation. But in another sense, we have to have more so we can debate or discuss with people who may not want to hear that or may not be convinced by that. And you'll have to come back after the break to find out what we will say to those people. Run over there. Don't give them $50 bills, all right? Don't use a charge card. Give them 7 bucks for the course guide if you need it. And run on back. Uh, how many of you have it right? How many of you already have your guide? Okay, a lot of you do. So the rest of you run over. We'll, we'll say we'll try to start back up in 15 to 20 minutes. As you recall, in our last episode, we were left with a, with a dangling question. What can we say about where we get the New Testament books beyond the concept of the self-attestation of Scripture? All reasoning is finally circular. But you want the biggest circle you can possibly get. The Bible is God's word. How do you know? Because it says so, and it's God's word, and God's word is true. Therefore, it's God's word. That's a really small circle. And it doesn't leave a lot of room for discussion with non-Christians. But there is room to say, you know, the Bible claims to be the word of God. And there are 700 pieces of evidence that support that, and, we can, and anybody can discuss those, see? And they all draw us to a certain conclusion. We want a really big circle that allows lots of debate and lots of things that are open for public discussion. So that's, uh, you know, that's what we want to do when we talk about the canon. I'm only going to do a tiny bit of that because I am not going to here get into what other courses will teach you, namely things about the reliability of the authors of the Bible. I'm not going to go into detail about the fact that in antiquity people memorized the teachings of their teachers, and that's how you could have Jesus' words kept safe. And I'm not going to get into the general ability of an oral culture to preserve stories that shape their community generation after generation, even up to a thousand years unchanged which lead us to believe that the same can be done with the New Testament. So there are lots of things like that. We could talk for hours. I'm not going to go into those. What I want to do instead is look at the way that the Bible talks about itself and the idea uh, that the self-attestation of the Scripture is good, but we also need to go a little bit farther. So what we want to do then, when we look at the, uh, at the source of the canon, the source of the 27 books of the New Testament, that we have is to present the biblical case 
but also to draw in as much as we can from other lines of reasoning. For example, just to go back to the ones that we saw earlier, uh, Luther says the canon is what preaches Christ truly. And I want to say there's a lot of truth to that. Specifically, that idea includes orthodoxy. So the, uh, for a book to be accepted into the canon, it should cohere or agree with the other books. It should be orthodox. Uh, second, the church is... Uh, the canon is what the church has always accepted. That entails antiquity. There are certain books that have always been used. The idea of inspiration is implicit in the idea of the self-attesting character of Scripture. Uh, but we need a little bit more than that. We need something deeper. So let's, let's start off with the idea, basic idea, that the idea of a canon appears already in the New Testament itself. The idea of canon is biblical, and this fact is found throughout the New Testament. I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter 3.16. There is a crucial verse there that is easy to overlook. 2 Peter 3.16, because the point that we're interested in right now is a subordinate clause. It's just a little side remark, easy to miss. 2 Peter 3.16. Now, Paul, uh, sorry, Peter start off, starts off this way in verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with the wisdom that God gave him. Verse 16. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in, uh, speaking of them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Did you hear the key phrase? What's the key phrase? The other scriptures. When he says, as they do the other scriptures, some translations say, as they do the rest of scriptures, what did he just say about Paul? He says that what Paul is writing is scripture. And the crucial thing is that it's, it's not even his main point. You see, he's assuming that he and his writers agree, and his, his readers agree that Paul writes inspired literature. If it was debated, he'd say, you know, he'd defend it and explain it and give three reasons and so forth. But it's just assumed that everything Paul writes is canonical. Now, there's another one I'd like you to turn to, and that is found in 1 Timothy 5.18. 1 Timothy 5.18. Turn back. Oh, 20 or 30 pages in your Bible. To 1 Timothy 5.18, which is talking about how pastors should be paid. How many, how many of you in this room are pastors right now? Just raise, ask for a raise of the hand. Okay, you got <clears throat> maybe about three people who are pastors in here. First, <clears throat> First Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, about paying those who preach and teach, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And... The worker deserves his wages. Now, if you have a Bible with marginal references, where does don't muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain come from? It comes from the Old Testament. I hear people witness, whispering. It comes from Deuteronomy. All right. Where does the worker deserves his wages come from? It comes from Luke. Now, what did he call that at the beginning of the verse? He called it, the Scripture says. Therefore, when Paul writes 1 Timothy, and the date is 
almost certainly at the very end of Paul's life, around the year 67, 67, 68 A.D., he is already quoting Luke as scripture. So back to the original objection. You know, these books weren't recognized until the year 300 or 400 A.D. Not so. They were recognized immediately in an offhand way. It's assumed that these things are uh, the scripture, that which is written on the par, in fact, with the Old Testament scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14.37, I already quoted to you once tonight. Uh, Paul says, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. A rule about church order. Uh, some books of <clears throat> the New Testament also anathematize or curse teaching that does not cohere with their teaching. Turn with me to Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. This is what Paul says. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Now when he says this, he is assuming that his words are the standard. Anything else leads to damnation and is in fact damnable and damned. And those who preach it are in that condition. So he is assuming, Paul is assuming, this is already in the year 47, 48, 50 AD, you know, one of his early letters, that his writing is the canon, that is to say, the test of the truth. We also have 1 John chapter 4, which has uh, you know, warnings about the spirit of the Antichrist that has already come into the world. Now, when you call somebody Antichrist, we think today, oh, you know, the beast and the dragon and the Mark 666 and things like that. But John says, no, the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. And he's saying anybody who denies our message is, in the most literal sense, Antichrist. If you deny that Christ came in the flesh, that he gave an atoning sacrifice, the other things that John teaches, you are anti-Christ. You see, if you have a question, ask it now. You see that the act of saying those sorts of things, if you disagree with me, it's damnable and it's anti-Christ, is, is assuming that what they say is authoritative. It is canon. The word canon means the rule of faith and life. They know that what they're writing is the rule. You see that? So the concept of canon does not come 400 years later. They know. They know. Uh, think also of the way in which Jesus spoke. When Jesus gave his commands, for example, on the Sermon on the Mount, so very often he said, Truly, I say to you. Or, in the Gospel of John, Truly, truly, I say to you. About 35 times he says that. Truly, truly, I say to you. He also says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, what's he doing when he does that? He is equating his words with the Old Testament, absolutely. He's saying, just as much. In fact, we might even say, you've misconstrued the Old Testament. I'll tell you what it really means. I'm the definitive interpreter, and my word stands. Again, back to the question, when you want to make a point, if you're not full of authority, where do you go? Well, you go to some other scholar or expert, but Jesus doesn't do that. He never says, and you know I'm telling you the truth because there was this teacher I had who said so. 
Or there's this really great book I read last week, and it said so too. He never says that. Now, he does indeed quote Scripture occasionally to prove that what he's saying is consistent with the rest of the Bible. But it, it confirms what he has to say, or corroborates. It doesn't demonstrate. It's not his source of authority. It proves of his, his authority. Furthermore, the very idea that Jesus chose apostles. Why did Jesus choose apostles? To be with him, as he says in Matthew 10 and Matthew 28. What were they in, in, in Acts chapter 1? They were called to be my witnesses. They are there to testify to the word and the work of Christ. The idea being that the church needs to have someone who will remember what Jesus says and understand what he did and understand what it all signifies. We would say then that Christ established a formal authority structure to be the standard and the source for all future preaching. I just quoted a book to you. I'm going to hold the book up. When I said that, Jesus established a formal authority structure to be the source and standard for all future preaching of the gospel. It comes from a book I'm using right now called Redemptive History and the New Testament Scriptures. You will notice that it's real skinny. And it's a good thing because it's real heavy. But if you can make it through 30 pages of this, uh, his description of where we get the New Testament is by far the best I have ever read. And now I'm going to quote authorities. And, and everybody else here on the faculty at Covenant Seminary thinks this is the book of books to get if you want to investigate the canon from a biblical perspective. Redemptive history and the New Testament scriptures is available in our bookstore, and it's by a man named Herman Ritter Boston. If you have a name like Herman, you have to have really good writing skills, and he does. Actually, he's Dutch, and Herman is a good name over in, in Holland, so he's okay. Uh, the apostles were chosen, Acts 10.41 says, Acts 10.41 were chosen to be eyewitnesses. One of the proofs of that is that when the twelfth apostle, Jude, uh, came to an end, who did they choose? Or what was the criteria? What were the criteria for their, for their placement? Had to be there from the beginning, had to be an eyewitness, had to not only have seen it, but have been with them to interpret. You hear what I'm saying? It's not just seeing it, but understanding it. The two things go together. Let me just illustrate that for a moment. Do you remember back in high school? Maybe I'll, I'll, I know this class is 50-50, but I'll do it from a male perspective. And, and a, a beautiful girl uh, comes up to you and makes it very clear that if you would ask, she would, she would go out with you on this weekend. You think, you know, she's way out of my league. At least that's, that was my experience in high school. I don't know about the rest of you. But, you know, it was always calculating leagues and who was in my league and out of my league and so forth. And you're thinking, this girl's way out of my league, but she is obviously interested in me. Well, you can take that a couple ways. You can say, maybe I have a higher social standing than I thought. Or it could be, you might not know this, that she just broke up with her boyfriend because she's really ticked and she's just going out with you to make him mad and to get his attention. You see, you have to not just have the event that she's flirting with you. You also need the interpretation of the event. She's not really interested, you know. <laughs> she just wants to provoke her boyfriend. That's all. So you, you need the interpretation, not just the event. That's what the apostles had Jesus then called and trained 12 to see, to hear, to remember, to teach, to understand. And what they got as a consequence is called, a very different meaning of the word, is called the tradition. A number of times in the New Testament. 
Now, by tradition here, I don't want you to think of tradition in the sense we were using earlier, the Catholic Church's tradition, like what we always do. You know, we have these 27 books because we've always had these 27 books. And we baptize babies because we've always baptized babies, or whatever it is that you do because you've always done it. Um, you know, you can pick your own tradition and fill it in. That's not what I mean. What I mean by tradition is the distilled, fixed essence of the apostolic proclamation of Christ. The distilled, fixed essence of the apostolic proclamation of Christ. Not a social tradition, but rather a body of teaching that has been carefully phrased, carefully preserved, even memorized and passed down to reliable people who will guard it just the same. Now, what I want to do is show you uh, some other passages, that, some passages in the Bible that have this idea. Would you turn with me? We don't, we're not going to spend a lot of time in, in, um, in Jude, but we'll do that one second. Maybe let's do 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 first, and we'll do Romans once, and then we'll do Jude in just a moment. Now let's do let's do First uh, Thessalonians chapter two first of all. First Thessalonians two. The idea here is that there is a body of teaching that is to be preserved, taught, and guarded and received by the church. First Thessalonians chapter two. My fingers are moving slowly this time. Verse thirteen. We thank God continually because when you receive the word of God which you heard from us. Did you hear what he just did? He just, he just said that he was the oracle for the word of God. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So his word is the word of God. Then down in verse 15, just skipping a tiny bit, I'll go ahead and read 14, just so you have the context. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men. Now, I've lost, I've lost what I'm looking for. Hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. Now, I've lost what I'm looking for. Uh, why do I have verse 15? Can anybody help me? Okay, there you go. That's what I wanted. Thank you. Uh, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. That's it. Thank you. Uh, so he's putting Jesus and the prophets and us all at the same level. Thank you for helping me out on that one. So he has this sense of his own authority. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, is another one that talks about the tradition and the idea of handing things down. Now, in the NIV, we have a little bit of a, a translation that obscures this one. He says, Thanks be to God that although you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching. Now, that phrase, form of teaching, is that same word, tradition. You wholeheartedly obeyed the tradition to which you were entrusted. Did you hear that? 6.17 of Romans. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching, the tradition to which you were entrusted. You were entrusted to it. It's like a living thing. 
And then maybe another one that you know a little bit better over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them down to you or passed them on to you. Even the little thing about the Lord's Supper, you know, uh, he says in verse 23, same chapter, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That's all the same idea. There's this body of doctrine given by Jesus to the apostles and then should be carefully guarded and handed on to you. And it's authoritative. It's not just something or other. It's actually the content of the faith. One more from Jude chapter 3 as another indicator that this is not just in Paul, but it's found elsewhere. And if you'd like to have more verifications of this, you can also find this in, uh, in 1 Timothy 6 verse 20. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8, other places where you'd find it. But just one more. Dear friends, Jude writes, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. The idea of it being handed down. Now what I want to say to you then is this that this business of handing down the words of Christ and handing down a summary of what Jesus did, his miracles, and the doctrine that he taught, what the, all the apostles agreed upon, that teaching had been around from Pentecost onward. That teaching, that oral teaching that was guarded, to which you're entrusted, all that kind of language, that was the foundation of the church. That gave birth to the church. The church recognized the written works, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the books of Romans, Hebrews, James, Peter. They recognized them instantaneously as canon, as the written record of what they had already believed. And had not just believed, but again, it had been entrusted to them. They were guarding it. It had been established as the definitive content of the faith. And that is why, if you look back in history, contrary to that Catholic I was talking about earlier and the liberal Protestant, the truth is that if you look at the way in which the Gospels, the letters of Paul and Acts and some of the other books, 1 Peter, 1 John, were received, they were always received instantaneously as canon. Let me put it to you this way. The first manuscript, the earliest manuscript, and every manuscript that's ever been found, the earliest copies, 200 A.D., 250, 225 A.D., and onward, always have all four Gospels and no other Gospel. There is no copy in existence of the, of the New Testament, handwritten copy from the first centuries, that have another Gospel, like the Gospel of Peter, which is one that exists and was floating around, and people reject it. You don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Gospel of Peter. Anywhere. Those four, always, and only those four. Letters of Paul, always, all 13 and nothing else. Always. Acts, always in there. Never excluded. First Peter, First John. Yes, it's true that some people don't have second and third John and so forth. Yes, it's true that sometimes Hebrews is put last with a little asterisk because they don't know who wrote it and that scared some people. All right? That's true. 
in some early copies. But the bulk of the New Testament was instantaneously always everywhere accepted because it's the written record of the teaching by which they had already been saved. It's a written record of what they had always heard, always been taught. So there wasn't any debate about it. They knew. And that is why uh, some people say, especially Catholics will say, um, the church chooses or creates the canon. Or they'll say, uh, the canon is the product of the church. And I would say that is exactly backwards. The truth is, the church is the product of the canon. The canon, now I'm using the word canon to mean the rule of the faith. That rule existed in oral form for some decades until the New Testament was written. And then when it was written, people said, this is it. Now we have a written record. And as the apostles start to die and the first generation start to leave, now we don't have the living voice. We don't have people who are there anymore. That's true, they're gone. But now we have their record. The church is the product of the canon. Uh, or we could put it this way. What they had always been carefully taught was used to judge the books that came by to them. Did these books that come by, uh, do these books indeed teach what we've always heard? Let me just stop right there and see if anybody has a question or a comment, sorry, that they would like to raise. Question or comment? Yes. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. Resourcesforlifeonline.com.